Welcome to the Pathway Podcast. This is the final week of the series, Biblical Perspective. Lead pastor, Jeremy Flanagan, explores the biblical perspective of a divisive subject in our society. Stay tuned after the sermon for this week's next steps. In Luke chapter 10, there's a story that Jesus was giving, and he uh, was talking to them uh, about how to kind of love each other. And this is a passage we went over a couple of years ago when we did the art of neighboring, but today we're going to look at it in a little bit different light. In Luke chapter 10, he gave us, he said, uh, one day, or uh, one day an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I always start there, and when we talk about salvation and where we share some of those things, it's always, you know, good to remind us that most people come into this world, myself included, most everyone that you talk to, uh, we had really been hoping to uh, get to do some of our door-to-door surveys uh, yesterday, but because of, of just COVID and other things, we felt it wasn't a good time to be knocking on doors. Uh, but uh, when we did that years back, over 70% of people that we asked the question, you know, what do you think it takes for a person to go to heaven? And this is over 70% of people that live, you know, within a few miles of this building. Uh, they all said some version of believe in God and live a good life or, you know, do our best. And while living a good life and doing our best is what God does want out of us, that, that's not part of the equation about how to get to heaven. Getting to heaven is all about trusting in Jesus as Savior. It's just relying on what he did, not you being worth it because you're not, not you being able to do enough good because you can't. And because of all of that, it's just about just believing in him, just letting Jesus do the work and saying, that's what I'm going to rely on, not myself, not anything else. So here, this question that this man asks of Jesus, it's very common because if I went and had this type of discussion with over 70% of people that lived around us, that same thing would be there. Some of y'all are probably here with that same type of thought or question, or maybe you haven't released or let go of that idea that we have to do something to be good enough or to earn or to keep our salvation in Christ. And so um, I just wanted to start there and kind of share the gospel because this has been a, we haven't focused on the gospel as much this series because we've been talking about the different issues that scare us to talk about and keep us from, from going out and giving the gospel to others. And so when you ask in your own mind, what should I do to inherit eternal life? You need to take away anything that comes from you. It all has to be about what Jesus did. It all has to be about his death on the cross, about his perfect life, about his sacrifice. Well, obviously Jesus is the one answering this and he kind of knew where the conversation needed to go for everybody in the room. And so he took it in this direction. He replied in verse 26, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus asked him, what does it take? The man recites the, the, you know, the summary of the first two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, okay. 
And the guy says, well, let's boil that down, right? And when I've talked about this passage before, it was always, I, I approach it from the standpoint of how this person wanted to figure out how he could limit who his neighbor was so the job would be smaller, right? It's, it's like discussions with your children. Anytime you give them something to do and they try to whittle it down to figure out the smallest amount that they can do in order to have met your criteria and be done, right? It's not about, uh, you know, I, I was a teenager, I get it. Um, you know, it, it wasn't about, you know what, dad asked me to do that. I'm gonna go see if I can do the best job I can and exceed his expectations. No, it was never that. It was, I wanna do as little as possible to get this done so I can get back to what I wanna do. And that's pretty much what this guy, I think, was kind of doing. Well, well who is my neighbor? Um, I w- let's limit this down. He didn't wanna leave it broad. He didn't wanna leave it open because then he might have to love everybody. And, you know, that's a, that's a hassle. Um, and so there is the question that we're going to kind of address today as we wrap up the series is who is my neighbor? So we've looked at the conversations that are difficult for us to have that kind of make us apprehensive about talking about God. Because if we start a spiritual conversation, if you start a conversation uh, that, that, that is about God, it can very quickly lead into politics or world events or the, well, what, is the, what do you think the Bible says about this? Or even better yet is when people start, even though they don't really know what the Bible says about it, they tell you what they think the Bible says about it and in a, you know accusation type of way, and then you have to defend something the Bible doesn't even say. And so I get it. It, it makes it very difficult. I have these conversations a lot, and you can say that's your job. It is, but hopefully we all prepare ourselves to be able to have these conversations. And so a few weeks ago when we started, we talked about LGBTQIA plus issues. We talked about the biblical perspective behind that and also looked at how uh, people that uh, are um, they're in that uh, type of lifestyle, how they've been treated and how Christianity really dropped the ball on addressing sin as a whole. You know, and we would focus on certain sins and then excuse our own. Uh, and because of that, it made it very weak when we actually go and talk to people about what the Bible says about all sin. And that if we can't still love people, even though that they are sinning in in a certain way, and especially if we don't love people who are doing certain sins, but we're perfectly fine with ourselves or friends or family doing some of the same sins listed in the same passages as issues of homosexuality or other things, then then it, it makes us hypocrites doesn't make us look like hypocrites. It makes us hypocrites, and therefore we look like hypocrites. And so because of that, it's made us very weak on being able to actually share what God says about what sin is and what sin isn't. And then also, how are we supposed to respond to people and love people no matter what sin they're dealing with? And so we talked about those issues. Last week, we uh, kind of went to the base of that question about how do we get to a place where Christianity and our culture is so... Um, dismissed immediately or attacked, uh, and we looked at the uh, kind of the ideas of, of postmodernism. Uh, talked about um, how that many things grew out, uh, and I'm not going to go over that sermon again. It was a lot. You can go back and listen to it. Uh, I still haven't got all my links up. I know I've been exceptionally busy, um, but I will try to get a lot of my resource links up in two weeks. I'm going on vacation this week. It's not going to happen. I can tell you it would. It's not going to happen. Uh, and so you can take a look at that sermon and look at it, but really one of the main thing is is starting 
out after post-World War One and really post-World War Two and the failure of, of academics who had put a lot of hopes into different social structures like Marxism and seeing their failures in Germany and Russia um, started saying, well, n- no system works. And so the postmodern era began in strength in the 60s and deconstructed everything. Everything that was a structure of society, whether it be politics, whether it be governments, uh, whether it be uh, religion, uh, whatever it is, all structures are virtually are bad. They didn't replace it with anything. They just deconstructed everything. And so then what we saw grow out of that starting in the 80s and 90s and really uh, becoming full force about 10 years ago is all the different ideas of theory, critical theory. And that's what you know, we talked about a little bit the last you know, couple of weeks in this series. Uh, and today we're gonna deal with kind of one of the final things that you guys mentioned when we asked you a couple of months back, what are the topics that you wanna discuss? What are the topics that you want to hear a biblical perspective from? Because you're, you know, get anxious talking about these things. And one of them was racism, or specifically critical race theory. What is it? How do we view it? What do we think about it? Um, and so I have prepared this sermon multiple different ways. Um, and I'm gonna give you a whole lot of resources that you can look at. Um, but I just kind of went a different direction late last night and this morning. Um, gonna focus on some different topics here. I'm going to give you some of the background scripture. I'm gonna give you some of the background of what CRT is, but I'll have a lot more online. Um, it's just more than I could really fully unpack here. So I'm gonna do my best. I'm gonna leave it very light because there's no way I can do it completely. Um, so when I say things that you say, I don't believe that, Jeremy, Okay, that's fine. That's all right. I'm going to give you my background. You can go look at it. Um, you can trust that I've put, you know, 20 plus hours into this. Um, and, and when I say that, I'm talking like in the last 10 days. I'm not talking about all the time I've put into it before then. Uh, so, um, so I've researched it to death, but I'm not going to try and bore you to death. I can't convince anyone of anything. Um, I'm going to try and stay as best as I can to the biblical problems that I have with it not necessarily the political side or anything else. You feel free to ask anytime if you have questions about anything I preach about. Sometimes you'll get a free lunch out of it if you have cheap taste, if you have expensive taste, we go Dutch. Um, but I'm willing to, to you know, sit down and share with anybody what I'm looking at, what I think, what I believe, why I say the things I do. So if I say anything today and you say, that makes me mad, that's fine. Wife says that all the time. We're still together. So let's just roll with it, ask me questions later, and, uh, and I'll explain anything you want. So um, I wanna start with a slide that I shared last year, I think in uh, either May or June. Um, and it's one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. And it says, uh, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. I love that quote, and it came from a man who <laughs> died for his, for his vision, died for what he loved, which was all people, but especially trying to promote the, the, uh, you know, the equal uh, opportunity and the equal treatment of the African-American community, of the black community. And so 
when he said these words, and the funny thing is, is that when I say these words, had I preached this sermon in a predominantly white church 100 years ago, um, it would have been very frowned upon, right? Very frowned upon. Um, But if I say these words in a discussion with people who are advocates of critical race theory, then I am a racist because I'm not anti-racist, because I can't be not racist, because that no longer exists. Because you're either anti-racist or you're racist, or in the case of somebody like Vody Bakken that I'm gonna to refer to later, or Thomas Sowell or others that, that I read, that, uh, that they have simply internalized um, their racism and are still supporting um, racist structures. So when you look at the words of Martin Luther King Jr., um, what would have been you know, scandalous to say in a predominantly white church in the South 60, 70, especially 100 years ago, um, can be scandalous today, but primarily if they were said in a predominantly black church anywhere. And that's where we're at, where words of truth that cut one side of the argument back then cut a different side of the argument now. And what we have to do is we have to determine who is right then, who is right now, are we right, how to be right, how can I say that what I believe is right when so many people say so many other different things? And when you look at that dynamic, you can say, well, I don't know, I, I, I'm just gonna stay out of this altogether. And that's fine, but guess what? That's the same thing you have to get over to be able to share the gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that cuts in all directions and that most people in this world don't understand a growing majority of people in this world don't believe and an ever-growing even plurality of people um, are against. So being able to figure out what's true, what's not true, being able to figure out what words uh, carry truth no matter what culture they're shared in, no matter what time they're shared in, it's an unbelievably difficult thing. And what I want you to do today is through everything is that we're gonna look at the scope of scripture. Because... All social sciences can benefit us, helping us see different points of view and helping us learn things, but they're only true if they either agree with or don't disagree with Scripture, okay? So we can learn a lot of things. We we can learn, you know, a lot of things from a lot of different sources, but they are only true if they don't disagree or if they agree with Scripture, well, if they don't disagree with Scripture, but they don't necessarily agree with Scripture, then I can call them benign. I wouldn't call them truth. It's got to come from a biblical principle. Otherwise, I'm not going to stand on it. So let me share a few quick Scriptures with you as we move on. Genesis 1, 27, 28. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So Genesis starts off calling human beings image bearers of God. I said this last week. I've said it before in sermons. I'll say it again. Race does not exist in a biblical perspective. It is not. There is a human race. That's it. There are different ethnicities. There are different 
cultural, there are different, slightly biological between like what body chemistry makes up and like medicines will work better with one ethnicity than other and things like that. But as far as human beings, as far as intelligence, as far as ability, as far as everything else, we're all part of the human race. It's that simple. Um, And so race is a social construct. That's one thing that critical race theory and I agree with. Where they go from there, I don't. Um, Romans 10, verse 12 and 13. When it's talking about salvation, the New Testament tells us Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on them. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're not familiar with the term Gentile, it just means everybody who's not a Jew. And the Jewish people um, had a lot of animosity towards Gentiles. When we talk about Samaritans here in a minute, you'll really see that. Uh, But the scripture in the New Testament is full of language telling us that salvation is available to everyone. Doesn't matter what ethnicity they're from. Doesn't matter what belief background they're from. Why? Because in Genesis, we are all created in God's image. We're all his image bearers. And then in 1 John 2 and 9, it says, If anyone claims I'm living in the light but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Now, is that talking about a person, if they hate a fellow believer, that they're not going to heaven? You can argue that. I don't believe that because I know people that have a strong testimony of their faith in Christ who still harbor hatred or resentment for other people. Just like I know people who have a strong testimony of their faith in Christ and still yet are, are living sinful lifestyles or they're partaking in sin and dismissing it or excusing it because salvation is about your belief in Jesus, not about how well you're able to show his reflection. And so I believe here, however, that it is saying that if you are a person and you cannot lo- love other fellow believers, you're still living in darkness. So you've accepted Jesus Christ, but his light in your life and the change that it can make and the glory that it could have not only for you, but what it would shine to the world around you is not existing in your walk because you're not loving other people. And so herein is where I make the statement, same statement I made a few weeks ago. When it comes to our inability to uh, have effectively address the issues of um, homosexuality or other things in the LGBTQIA plus um, lifestyle and, uh, and in those issues and that movement, a lot of that comes from our failure as Christians to be consistent with the word of God over time. When culturally Christians simply pick and choose things and treat things in a certain way and with, uh, with the, like the issues of homosexuality and when we just push to the side or don't talk about having sex outside of marriage in other ways, or we're okay with that, we're fine with that, even though the Bible says that's a sin in the same verses that talk about homosexuality, that makes us hypocrites. So imagine when you do look culturally at where we are as a society and where societies have been, when even believers in Christ for generations and hundreds of years condone slavery. And not just slavery, Because you can look back in the Old Testament and you can say, well, there was slavery in the Old Testament. Yes, there was. We've preached on this before. And if you look back in the Old Testament and you see uh, the different things, there was slavery all around the world. And so within the law, they outlined how Jews were supposed to act within that world. 
Um, would it have been nice to have said, you know, don't have it whatsoever? Absolutely. Um, but what they did and all those things is they weren't to mistreat them. Actually, they were supposed to harbor slaves who had run away from somebody that was mistreating them. And so whatever you look at all the Old Testament stuff and everything else and to try and, you know, excuse and everything, you can't one way or the other. What I can say is, is that the way they were told to treat people who were slaves in the ancient world was that if they were being mistreated, that you, at risk to yourself, because that slave owner would be angry with you and might try and come by force, take them back, but that you were to take them in and you were to protect them. And so when you see that view of what slavery was thousands of years ago versus what it was in this country hundreds of years ago, then it's extremely easy Extremely easy to see how 1 John 2, 9, this says, if we claim we're living in the light, but we hate a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. How that Christians lost the ability to effectively speak on racial issues when race itself doesn't even really exist. But people allowed it to exist to take advantage of it or to feel better about their ethnicity than another ethnicity or for whatever different reasons. Now, in our country, it is stark and no pun intended and clear as black and white. In other parts of the world, in Africa specifically, where the slaves were captured and were sold, it was done by other Africans for the most part. One tribe would defeat another tribe and take them as slaves and those are who would typically then be sold to whether it's Americans, whether it's the Islamic slave trade, Europeans, or others, or they would be captured, they would be you know, taken in. And so um, there it was people of the same ethnicity turning on each other. Whether it's you look like, if you go back far enough, I, I've wondered and I can't find the, like uh, my ancestors on the Flanagan side passed right before the Civil War and I uh, can't find anything before then because uh, uh, don't know if they were adopted, kind of a little murky there. Um, but uh, I always wonder if my Irish and Scottish side were lorded over by my British side. Um, I've always wondered that. Um, when you look at, uh, even in America, before Americans got here, um, slavery was not introduced on this continent by the first settlers that came from Europe because it was here long before then. I always ask the question when I've had conversations with people, you know, they'll have the topic about, well, the, the land needs to go back to um, you know, to the, the people who were here before. And I understand that argument and everything else. I also have uh, some uh, Cherokee heritage on my mother's side. Uh, not, uh, not a lot, but, uh, you know, what was done to the Native American people here was also horrible. But it's the history of the world. There's a whole lot of horror out there. But when you say that, if you look in New York and you look at the Iroquois tribes and everything else, they had defeated, killed, and enslaved the other Native Americans who were there before them and took their land. It, it, this is not uncommon to humankind and human nature, is what I'm trying to say. At the same time, you can't use a blanket statement like that to either say, well, then that means it wasn't wrong, right? Or to say that you can't understand why people still look at that situation, that yes, it's over 150 years gone in this country now, but that it's still an issue. You can't look at either side of that argument and say that there can't, there's, there's zero understanding for, for either side. 
You know, whether you grew up and, and you know, I grew up in the South. I grew up uh, in Charleston, Arkansas, which I tell people, and most people don't know because they hit it. Uh, they were actually the first school district in the South to desegregate. But when Time Magazine called, uh, called them, uh, I believe they talked to Dell Bumpers, who was the uh, lawyer at that time for the school board and for the, for the school district, and they asked if they desegregated. He said, I don't know what you're talking about because they didn't want the National Guard there. They didn't want the TV cameras there and everything else. They let Little Rock have all that. Uh, and so, all right, well, that was a really good thing for my hometown. Still, I grew up in the South, heard a lot of racial jokes, heard a lot of different things like that. Uh, I can say, you know, and uh, I, never, I never got into repeating that kind of stuff. I never did any of that, even though it came from people that I knew. It came from family. It came from uh, even having a conversation with a, a pastor in the area who had been brought up in a place where they looked down so much on the black population that they wouldn't go to church with them, and they even questioned. Um, he didn't necess- He didn't, although he said he didn't. But people he grew up under questioned whether or not that they would go to heaven. And that, that's how bad that, that it was in places. So, yeah, we're 150 plus, 160 you know, years removed, but the, the horrors of that mindset are about as dark as you can get from 1 John 2, 9. From people who say they believe in God that skip right over the part in Genesis that says we're all image bearers of Christ, and that who skip all over the parts that talk about salvation is available to everybody from every ethnicity in Romans and say, I'm fine doing whatever I want to this person because they're different than me. So, yes, the horrors of it are unbelievably real, in my opinion, even worse so because so many were committed by people who professed to know Christ. That makes our job even harder. That makes our job difficult to talk about issues like this or to move forward in any constructive way. If you disagree with conversations that are being had today, if you disagree with tenets of theory, if you disagree, whatever, whichever theory, whichever of the different four or five major branches, you know, eight to 10 smaller branches that you disagree with, then you are called everything in the book, and that's fine. Um, you know, I can sit up here and... Uh, um, and I did. I had a lot more history that I was going to share. I had a lot more things like that I was going to share. I've got stories uh, from my youth. I've got stories from my adulthood. Uh, I, I can talk to you to try and prove to you that I'm not a racist, except like I already said, that doesn't even exist because you're either racist or anti-racist. And uh, I'm neither of those. Um, and I'll explain why. Because anti-racist isn't that you're against racism. It's that you're also for a worldview that, that is not biblical. And so I believe I'm not racist, but that's my problem because it just means that I haven't engaged with the dialogue long enough to be able to accept the dialogue, to be able to understand my implicit racism within the structures of this society. And therefore, because I won't admit that I am, then I'm actually feeding into the structure of this society, which is inherently racist. And that in itself is what critical race theory is. I'm gonna share with you real quick definition from Encyclopedia Britannica. I'm going to share with you a few little snippets, give you the basics of what it is, and then I want to move on to this story in Luke chapter 10. So first slide, and this definition I pulled from Encyclopedia Britannica, you can tell 
because these weird people spell the word color with you in it, and uh, you know they need to learn English. But an intellectual movement and loosely organized framework of legal analysis based on the premise that race is not a natural, biologically grounded feature of physically distinct subgroups of human beings, but a socially constructed, culturally invented category that is used to oppress and exploit people of color. That's where I start with them. And I'm like, okay, there we go. There's some biblical truth there, actually. Because race does not exist. It does not. There's the human race, that's it. There are differences in melanin. There are differences in, in biology over time, um, but very minor. Not the type that people who used racial divisions and who created different views of race um, used to try and divide people. Those aren't true. But um, that's, that's about where I end with them. So that's the start of the definition. And the second half, uh, the only thing I, I do disagree with that first part. Now, when they say it, it's an intellectual movement, and that's how it always starts. Well, critical race theory, it's just, a, it's just a tool that's used. It's just an analytical tool used in law schools and everything else. And it's a loosely organized framework. Um, and that's, that's where I start to disagree, because they like to say that it's just a way for us to analyze and look at different... We're just... It's kind of a devil's advocate type of uh, tool. It's just a critical race type of tool. Um, second slide says, critical race theories hold that the law and legal institutions of the United States are inherently racist insofar as they function to create and maintain social, economic, and political inequalities between whites and non-whites, especially African Americans. And, and typically it is. It's talking about whites and, and, uh, and the black community or the uh, Hispanic community. Um, the, uh, any people with Asian ethnicity, y'all are kind of left out of the discussion. Actually, when it comes to quotas and things, you're put on the other side of white people. Um, so um, anyway, but that's uh, neither here nor there, even though people of Asian descent were the last ones that were somewhat incarcerated because of their ethnicity in the United States during World War II. But anyway, you can't really talk within this subject with most people and get a very deep understanding of the social, the political, definitely the biblical groundings and backgrounds of it because most people don't know. It usually comes down to this and simply this. Well, are you racist? Well, no, I'm not. Well, that, are you anti-racist then? Well, do you want to say no to that? Do you want to say no to that? I would venture that you don't. I do because I know what they mean by it, Right? So I, I know what is meant fully by that term, not just that I'm against racism, which I am, which I could share the different stories to try and prove myself to you and everything else. But as I went through those and, and all, um, throw up this slide, uh, a book. I've tried to give you a book each week that uh, is one, and I, and I finished this book, Fault Lines by Vody Bauckham. And as I sat there to myself, how do I speak on this issue of race and try and prove that I can have standing to discuss it? Because critical race theory says that I can't. I, I am at the top, I'm at the zero intersection mark. We talked about intersectionality last week a little bit. I have zero intersections. I am a, uh, a white, cisgendered, which just means that I was born male and I feel like I am. Uh, heterosexual, that I continue to live that way, Christian, male. Because of that, I have zero intersections, and therefore, by theories, rules, I can't talk about anything underneath that, anything that has an intersection of one, 
which, I mean, Jessica's been lording that over me all week long that I can't talk about it, you know, any of her issues because, you know, being a woman, she has one intersection. So uh, anyway, jokingly, the dog and I have been riding against the cisgendered matriarchy within the house. Um, anyway, I, I feed her scraps from the table and we fight about that often. And so every time Jessica gets on to me, I start rattling off all of these different critical theory terms and she gets mad and conversation's over. I give the dog another chip. It, it's working out great. Um, but um, with intersectionality, I can't talk about any of them. And I looked at trying to be able to, uh, you know, answer some of these things for myself and everything else. Um, Vody Bauckham. Vody Bauckham grew up, single family home. Um, he grew up in, on the streets of LA, grew up in the height of the crack epidemic, surrounded by crips and bloods, scared to death that he was going to walk the wrong way to school to where one day that he would be forced to tell them who he was running with. And at that point forward, he's in a gang and can't back out of it. Um, was scared of the police, but still yet, the only time he said that he felt somewhat safe on the streets is when the police were there. He said, which was a hard thing for him to grasp. Um, but was raised there. Um, he had cousins killed in, in that. He watched his dad, who was addicted to crack, who then later died from com heart complications because of that use and everything else. But because he became a Christian and a believer, and albeit I disagree with Vody on many a thing, all right? I disagree with him on the nature of grace. I disagree with him on some of his different applications when it comes to family and other things. But I've been reading him for the past 20 years. Um, and on this issue, because he disagrees with critical race theory, he spent the first two chapters of his book. The first chapter is called A Black Man. The second chapter is called A Black Christian. And so when I'm sitting here preparing to preach this message, and I realize that Vody Bauckham, who grew up in a single family home in the streets of LA in crack-infested, crime-ridden, crip-and-blood neighborhoods, has to justify himself and where he came from to speak on this. Do you, do you honestly think that, that, that you're going to get away with that without people saying you have no right to talk on it? Because whether it's him, whether it's the writings of Thomas Sowell, which are amazing, which people just dismiss uh, if, they, if they don't agree with that worldview, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, if you watch the, the movie that Larry Elder came with out, Uncle Tom, um, I can't imagine what it is to be a black man or black person, black man or woman speaking against this issue and the hate that's pushed towards them. I actually, um, I asked, uh, asked someone to help find out for me what the black community feels about Vody Bauckham. And the comment that, that, was came, that came back with somebody he knew that disagreed with Vody was that his, his conversations aren't helpful right now. That what he's saying isn't helpful. Not that it's not true. Not that it's not true, but it, it's not helpful. And uh, just a minute ago, and I, uh, I just looked it up so I wouldn't quote it, uh, misquote it, but the most commonly known quote by Martin Luther King Jr. is, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they'll not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, that's heavily debated now. It's parsed, it's nuanced. Where, like I say, from the pulpit, of a church in the South 70 years ago, that would have been a very, very hard thing to say in a predominantly white church. Now in a predominantly black church, it sometimes gets nuanced. 
Because within critical race theory, it states just by and large, just real summary, that all whites are racist. One of the examples, James Lindsay, I talked about his book, Cynical Theories, and Vody actually refers to him a lot. Uh, one of the examples he used in an interview is saying that it, at the crux of it is that if you're a store owner, say you're a clerk working behind the desk of a store, and that someone comes in, a black person, a white person, they come in pretty much at the same time. You have to decide who to help first, right? I mean, if both of them are walking up at the same time and everything else, you have to decide which one to help first. Obviously, if you're white and you help the white person first, then that's a racist act because you chose to help someone from your own ethnicity first and not someone who is black. However, if you choose to help the black person first, then what you're doing is that you're simply helping them first to try and show that you're not racist. And that in itself is a racist action that makes you feel good about yourself and everything else. And that's where critical race theory is. There is no winning. There is no being okay. Actually, um, I, I haven't got this book yet because uh, I haven't finished going through White Fragility. Um, but um, there's a book out now right now saying that actually the most racist people are progressive white liberals um, by the same author um, because they try and virtue signal all the time that they're not racist. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that um, it's the same thing when I talked back last year about Black Lives Matter and everything else. Do they? Absolutely. But an organization that that says that is against the, the nuclear family as a standard, which is God's standard, and that is a, four lifestyles that are against God's plan and all those other things, I can't do that. I could sit here today and I could talk to you about political theory all day long. I can tell you that we have, that there are solutions out there that I think would help not just the black community, but every community. Um, I can tell you, you know, the, the simple choices that if a person makes that they that, that the chances of them being in poverty are, are virtually none. And that's if they grow up and get a high school education, they, um, they uh, don't have children before they marry, pretty much if they do those two things, um, which also means that if they ever have kids, it's after that, that they'll never be in poverty. Um, and so I can tell you those things. One of the greatest statistics, and Vody Bakken brings this out in his book, Fault Lines, and man, he gets real political, all right, and everything else, and he calls out names of like people that he writes books with and stuff. He, he really goes after it. Um, but, uh, you know, he talks about the home. And he talks about the breakdown of the home nationwide, right? Culturally wide, but within the black culture even more so. Whereas less than a generation after slavery ended, the number of black households that had a mother and a father in them were actually higher than the percentage of white households. And that starting in the 60s, that trend reversed hugely and went the other direction, uh, went the other direction in a big way. And of course, he says that the solution is a godly solution, which is what we've said all along, is that none of us are going to fit God's plan perfectly. None of us are going to do it perfectly right. But what we do is not make excuses for and justify our aberrations from God's plan. Right? If you look at that, okay, I, I ended up being, uh, my teenage years brought up in a single parent home. I feel very lucky though because, well, my parents 
My mom's house and my dad's house was separated by a barbed wire fence, the land touched. Because of that, I don't feel lucky because it, it didn't always go well. Um, we moved across the other side of town. We, three miles made a good difference. Um, but I had both parents there in my life and, and everything else. So while I ended up in a single family home, I don't really feel that way. Um, so say that happens to you. Say that you make, don't finish high school or didn't do that or that you had children before you were married and you're like, all right, well, what do I do? Well, then you get as close to God's plan as you can from this day forward. That, that's, that's always the path. And sociologically, politically, and all of that stuff, I'm going to tell you that the paths forward that mimic God's plans are the ones that work. They do. I'm not gonna bore you with all the everything else today, but I can tell you this is that if we could find a way to fix homes and to fix families and find a way to strengthen that, it would do far more good than anything else we could try. It really could. If you wanna know more on that, read Vody. He's much better at it than I am. So, Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. When he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Let's just hold on that verse on verse 33 for a second. A despised Samaritan. So the question was asked by Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit salvation? Jesus said, what do you think? The guy repeated the first two commandments, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. Jesus said, do that and you'll live. Didn't necessarily say do that and you'll be saved. And there's debate and question there because being a good person is not a prerequisite of going to heaven. Doing good things, we can't do enough to justify our way into heaven. Anyway, Jesus was letting him talk, and so he just asked him a question. When the man said, who is my neighbor? Here was the story. You're, imagine yourself that you're this traveler, right? That's the point, right? Is that you're a Jewish man traveling, and you're going down this very dangerous road. You're attacked by bandits. You're left pretty much for dead. And then a priest comes along, and he doesn't help you. He crossed to the other side of the road. A temple assistant walked over, looked at you. I always get the, you know, the kicking to see if you're dead. You know, he didn't steal whatever else you had. So, I mean, he was better than the priest, I guess. Um, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. Why did the Jews despise Samaritans? Well, when you talk about critical race theory and when you talk about that view or almost anything in theory, you get to the idea of the oppressed and the oppressor. And because I'm at zero intersections, that I am the pinnacle of what would be referred to as an oppressor. Um, even though I personally haven't, even though I've actually tried to do the opposite whenever given the opportunity, doesn't matter. Just because of the skin color I was born into, that's who I am. And the culture I was born into, that's, in theory, that's how I'm viewed. So were the Samaritans the oppressed or were they oppressors? Well, when you read this and the Jews look at the Samaritans and call them despised, they think of them as less than type of people. You would feel that the Jews are probably the oppressors and the Samaritans are the oppressed. And at this point in time in history, you're close to right. But actually the reason that they hated them so much 
is that when the Jews were taken over and taken into captivity, and so many of them were then taken away over to Babylon into captivity, what they would do is the, the, their Babylonian rulers would then send different groups of people to live in Israel in their place, right? They would try and remove you from your homeland and put new people there to try and break all of that. You know, uh, everyone always, you know, talks about the whole don't mess with Texas and Texans have their view of their state, you know, that's far a lot more important than anybody else. Uh, and, and so they would take all the Texans away. They would ship them off to Rhode Island and then bring a bunch of people from Maryland and Montana and stick them down in Amarillo. Um, and so that's more or less what they did in Israel to try and kind of break those ties, right? That's what they would do. Um, well, the Samaritans were these people from other countries that were brought in to live in Israel's house, right? And then also the Jews that didn't get taken into slavery were left there and they married and mixed with those new peoples who came in and that's what made Samaritans. And so when the Jews came back to live, it was the Samaritans, these different group of people who were maybe some Jewish heritage, non-Jewish heritage and everything else that opposed their rebuilding of the temple, that opposed them building the, the walls of Jerusalem that stood against them. So at that point in time, when the Jews came back and when they started hating the Samaritans, the Samaritans probably more fit that construct of being the oppressor and the Jews the oppressed. Then a lot of time went by and everything else. The Jews were more in control of their own land, kind of flipped on who's the oppressor, who's the oppressed. But what I'm trying to get at is they hated each other. They hated each other. Trust me, the dynamic of oppressor and oppressed, the dynamic of, of ethnic differences and everything else, religious differences, the Samaritans move and, and built on Mount Gerizim, the place to worship God instead of doing it on the Temple Mount. The Jews hated them for that. They actually, I think, during the Maccabean Revolt is when they like tore that down. Um, anyway, and so um, they hated them. But in verse 33, it was that despised Samaritan who came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Verse 34, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than his, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. In verse 37, the man, that Jewish man asking the questions replied, the one who showed him mercy. I always love that. He didn't, even, he didn't say the Samaritan. He didn't even want to call him by name. He just said the third guy, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So to this Jewish man, he said, you go and be like a Samaritan. That, that's just how, how could you do that? So, I mean, that just, how could that Jewish man who hated Samaritans, now he was put in this situation where he's given a scenario that the only good person in that scenario was a Samaritan, and then this teacher said, go and be like him, who seconds ago, mentally, you hated. So, this is why when it comes to the issues of racism and everything else, I don't find my solutions in critical race theory. I listen to conversations. I also, and y'all know this, I mean, I talk about it biblically and everything else. We all have personal experiences and those experiences can mold and shape our views of what the Bible says. 
But if those views go against what the Bible says, I lean on the Bible. I lean on the facts. I lean on what Jesus said, what God said, what God inspired other men to write, <coughs> not how our personal experiences or narratives form it. And the same thing comes to how do we fix the issues plaguing us with differences in ethnicity that cause us to look bad at each other, to hate each other. You know, the, the, the writer of uh, the book White Fragility, I, I, I'm, I'm, I've read so much lately, I'm kind of getting some of them mixed up, but talked about being in a place surrounded by black people, realizing she was uncomfortable, realizing that she had racism in her, and then everyone does. And kind of that's where the idea came from. To which, you know, I want to say, well, maybe you just did. Um, and guess what? I've <laughs> got black friends and a sea of white people who can feel very uncomfortable. And I've been in places before when I was the only white person there and I felt uncomfortable. It wasn't around black people. It was the time I went and visited a mosque right after 9-11. I was like one of 300 people in the room and the only non-Muslim. Felt a little awkward. Wasn't racist. I was just... Uh, Man, it was just kind of weird being the one Christian in there. Um, but I can absolutely see where anybody who's not accustomed to be around people of another ethnicity or culture, you feel awkward. I love Vody Bachman in his book saying um, that one of the reasons he gets called an Uncle Tom or he gets traded a, a race trader, he says they say that he's skin folk, not kin folk, that he's black, but not really black, is that 20 years ago, he decided to go and minister in churches that didn't look like him because of racial reconciliation, that people were talking about that, but very few people were going to churches different than them to do it, and so that's why he went. And then uh, now for, um, oh, about seven years, six, seven years now, he's been ministering in Africa. And he said, the strange thing is, is that I ministered for 20 years in churches where people didn't look like me, and I felt a stranger in a strange land. He says, now I'm in Africa where everyone looks like me. And he said, and still yet, culturally, I'm a stranger in a strange land. Um, because he's realized past the point that it's not what you look like. It's the comfort of being around people who are like you with the same shared experiences. That brings a level of comfort. And it's understandable. It also can bring a human nature level of skepticism of people who aren't like you or don't share the same thoughts and everything else. Um, those are things within human nature that are natural, but so is greed, so is envy, so is hate. And as believers in Christ, we have to work against all of them. And the solution of that to me is not to set people against each other based on the color of their skin. You can say, Jeremy, that's a very nice white guy thing to say in 2021 because now it's being turned on you. I would like to say I would have said this and, you know, 1965, but I would like to say that. I can't go back and say that I would have. I don't know. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. So whether we're here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. It does not hurt to listen to the to the discussions or the claims around critical theory or anything else that do talk about, you know, group policies, about uh, group injustices and everything else. But biblically, you are judged from what you have done. 
and you cannot feel abdicated because whoever you came from didn't hurt others. You shouldn't feel guilty because of what people before you did. You are responsible for you, right? You're responsible for all of that. And so um, I'm having to watch here because I am who the uh, phone company will call, actually. Um, you are responsible for you. And I said earlier that we have the solution. The solution is to follow what the Bible says about loving other people. Galatians 3.25, now that the way of faith has come, we are no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have been put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you're the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. The biblical view is this. The solution for society is this. The solution to inequality is this. The solution to harmony and peace is this. That we do our best to follow God's plan. When we mess up, we do our best to get back as close as we can to it. Maybe it's a perfect picture down the road. Maybe it's just doing the best we can with what we have. People come from different places, whether that's ethnic, whether that's uh, upbringing, whether that's household. That does determine a lot in this world, absolutely does. What can we do to help and encourage others? I can tell you the one thing we must do is that we must look at scripture that says we are all created in the image of God. We must know that everyone is simply held accountable for what they do, and that's the biblical principle we follow, and that includes us, and that if we are united in Christ, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, so there's no longer ethnic differences, then oppressors or oppressed, slave or free, male or female. There are people who believe in Christ and people who don't. At the beginning of this series, three weeks ago, that's what I said. The most important thing is we don't find our identity in sexuality. We don't find it in ethnicity. We don't find it in politics. We don't find it in country. As much as I love this one, we don't find it anywhere else other than have we believed in Christ or have we not? And for those who have believed in Christ, they are our brothers and sisters above everything else. And for those who haven't, then we love them because they were created in the image of God. As our worship team comes, we prepare for a time of response. I just wanna thank you for you know, listening to this. I hope that it hit some of the points that some of you were asking about is a very difficult one to know where to go on a Sunday, but in the end, I chose to try and share scripture that make us realize that people having ethnic divisions and having discussions of oppressor or oppressor or having people having discussions and saying that you don't have the right to what we do or what we believe because of your ethnicity, it's, it's an old problem. And we're living in the problems that our most recent predecessors created for us. Can we overcome them? It depends on how close we walk to the plan of Christ. It depends on how close we follow his image. And so let's try to do that. And let's try to focus on that. There are gonna be a lot of questions out of this and I've already had a lot of questions out of other sermons in this series. July is that month where we really dive deep on some of the things y'all wanna talk about. I can tell you, I'm ready for August. 
I'm ready for some sermons that uh, talk about Jesus and talk about some other great things, right? But hopefully these have helped you see things from a biblical perspective. Let's stand and let's worship this morning. Mitchell's gonna be up here, maybe, or Jack. I'm about to be outside too, so if you need to talk about something, that's where I'm about to be, because I'm the only one who knows a passcode. And here they all are calling me. But you know, they can wait just a second for me to tell you. I started this message off talking about salvation in Christ. That's always the most important thing. I'm finishing in it with telling us that we must look at each other as brothers and sisters and nothing else divides us. Let's figure out ways to do that. Let's worship together. Thank you for listening. We challenge you to take some next steps this week. One, are you more likely to follow God's plan or try something that comes from human wisdom? It's easy to be swayed by the eloquence of man over the simplicity of God, but his way works. Evaluate how you are making life choices. Two, most activism has to do with deconstructing without a plan to fill the void. What can you do constructively to help others succeed? For more information about small groups, Pathway Kids, or anything Pathway-related, contact us at pathwaybaptist.com connect.